We are going to go over Revelation 16 this evening, and it's really the final judgments, seven bowls. We're not going to get to all seven tonight. we got about ten slides to go through. We're going to get up through the fifth bowl, and then uh, separately we'll deal with the sixth bowl and the seventh bowl. But let's, uh, let's open in a word of prayer, and we'll get right into it. Lord, we do thank you for your word. We want to understand it the best that we can, so enable us. Because you wrote it. So help us not to run away with things or ideas that we think may be stated or implied in the text, but help us to know what you meant. And for those things that we can't be completely sure of, we'll just deal with them as possibilities. But thank you for your word tonight as we go through these last four, last seven bowls, and we'll go through four or five of them tonight. We ask that you'll Enlighten our minds. Help us to understand your purposes behind these things. We thank you for them. We praise you in Christ's name. All right, so we're dealing with chapter 16. And it's basically the uh, final judgments, the final seven bowls, as I mentioned. And just as a slight bit of a repeat here or review, we want to remember, and it's been a few weeks, that previously Revelation 15 dealt with and presented the preparations that were happening in heaven for the release of these final seven bold judgments. And you'll recall there are a total of 21. There are the seven seals, the seven trumpets, and now the seven bowls. So there are totally 21 things happening, 21 forms of judgment that occur during a seven-year period called the Tribulation. And today, we're looking at the final but again, Revelation 15 was kind of the pageantry that was taking place in heaven prior to the rollout of these last seven judgments. So Revelation 16, as we're going to get into, details these. And it's amazing when you stop to think about the fact that these particular judgments, they're really intense. They're not, they're not lighthearted. They're not... Ooh, that's bad. They're like, these are bad. Really bad. And so, obviously, God has saved the worst for the last. So let's let's start looking at them. Revelation 16.1. The verse says this. Then I heard a loud voice from the temple saying to the seven angels, Go and pour out the bowls of the wrath of God on the earth. Pour out those bowls. So, I mean, again, in a way, the pageantry continues. We hear the angel or a loud voice from the temple, and of course, then I heard John is saying this. So, it's so hard, I think, to picture what John's going through. Here he is, privy to this situation that's occurring in heaven and what's going to occur or pour out on the earth. So, for him to relay what he saw to us, I think is difficult at best. And I think we also have to consider the fact that even though John saw these things in heaven, were they merely representations of actually what would occur on earth, or were they the actual thing? In other words, what I'm trying to say is, while the judgments were absolutely real, because we see that that's what happens on the earth, but it's almost like John is then able to see this connection between 
what takes place in the throne room in heaven and what then happens on earth. So John hears another loud voice out of the temple or the tabernacle that sits in the heavenly realm. And the final judgments are about to begin. Now, no one on earth knows this yet. So when we get to this point in the tribulation, they're not going to know. They're not going to have a clue as to what's coming, unless, of course, they happen to be believers at that point and know or have this sense of, oh, I understand his word. I know what's going to happen. We need to be prepared for this. And in some ways, by the way, what's happening here with these seven judgments is, in a way, similar to what happened during Moses' day when God was getting ready to move the Hebrews who became the Israelites out of Egypt and away from Egypt. Mm -hmm. So there's this similarity that's going on. In a way, obviously, the believers, the Israelites, through Moses, knew what was going to happen. They knew that wrath was coming, God's wrath was coming. They also knew that it was happening in the form of these particular judgments that God poured out on the Egyptians. And so too will the people who are believers living during the time of the tribulation, whenever it happens, they will have kind of prior knowledge about what God is going to release mm -hmm. upon the earth. So it's not, or it shouldn't, take them by yeah. surprise. It's going to take the world completely by surprise. So, these are referred to, as very important, bowls of wrath. The first ones were called the seals, the seven seals. The second set, the trumpet judgments. The, the seal judgments and the trumpet judgments were certainly judgments because they were referred to as judgments. But these are called the bowls of wrath, the bowls of God's severe judgment. And so he's getting ready to release those things onto the earth. And I think what this tells us is God is serious about His judgments on the earth and its people. He's not wasting time. He's not messing around. These are thoroughly serious judgments that God is getting ready to pour out onto the earth. And actually, if you consider this, nothing is going to stop it. Nothing. Satan, with his power the world with its power, unbelievers with their globalized government, the Antichrist with his supernatural, nothing is going to be able to stop, nor will stop, God from pouring out these judgments. So let's look at the first bowl. Verse 2 of Revelation 16 says, The first went and poured out his bowl on the earth, and severely painful sores broke out on the people who had the mark of the beast, and who worshipped his image. So this is very, very specific. And it is designated for one specific group. Only those people, which will be many, 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 a majority, only those people who have the mark of the beast on them will experience painful sores breaking out all over them. They have the mark of the beast. They worship his image. Now, the same group, Greek word translated mark here, charagma, also described, this is very interesting, mm -hmm. the seal attached to legal documents. That's from Dr. Constable. It was physical. 
It was obvious. It was a legally binding seal. So these people, this is why God said to those people who receive the mark, there's no chance of salvation for them because they have wholly and solely given themselves over to the worship of the Antichrist. And so, by accepting that mark, they have entered into a legally enforceable um, document, agreement, that says, you are my God. I worship you. That's what that symbol says. And these people who get it will be very proud of that fact. It's physical. It's obvious. It'll be on the forehead. It'll be on the right hand. It will be obvious. It's not something that will be easily hidden, and those people won't want to hide it. So this will be Antichrist's brand. It's very, very interesting that you can name any product that you're familiar with that has become a household name over the years, and you instantly, if I say to you Pepsi, if I say to you Coca-Cola, if I say to you McDonald's, any one of those three, and millions more. If I say to you those things, immediately your mind pictures the logo or symbol for that company and product. That's a brand. Companies pay millions of dollars to have a brand created, a logo created, so that they become thoroughly recognizable. So, for instance, Coca-Cola, Coca-Cola, you can say that, or you can say Coke, Either one, it's so recognizable, um, there are many products that do the same thing. So the Antichrist will have created a brand. We don't know what his mark is. We don't know what that logo looks like. Somehow it incorporates 666. Somehow it incorporates the number of man. But we really don't know what it looks like. There's a lot of guessing going on, and at best, it's guessing. So it's best left to those people who like to guess, but I don't know that we can sit there and go, oh, that's a really good guess. I like the way that sounds. That still doesn't prove anything. So really, we need to wait until we get there. Whatever that mark is, it's going to be known, it's going to be obvious, and it's going to be something that people will absolutely clamor for. It'll probably be very, very hip, something that people will just take delight in showing off, I wouldn't even be surprised, though this isn't in Scripture, but I wouldn't be surprised at all if, aside from the mark that's on the forehead or on the right hand, people have a line of clothing with that same mark that reflects that. I mean, I, I really think that that mark is going to infiltrate society. It will be seen from one end to the other. It will be common, commonplace. So even if you're wearing a jacket in the winter and you've got gloves on that may cover your mark, you're going to wear a jacket that has that mark on it. That's my thinking because people are going to be so proud of having that mark. They want to make sure it's seen. So even if you have it on your forehead and you're wearing a baseball cap or some knit you know, uh, hat or, or whatever they call them, what do they call those things? A beanie. A beanie or you know, the knitted thing that comes down. You pull that down over your forehead and your ears. Well, you're covering your mark, but maybe that beanie will have that mark on it as well. That's not something that's hard for me to believe. I think it is just going to absolutely infiltrate society. And I think people will get to the point where they start bragging about who has the best way to show the mark. Mm -hmm. that's, that's not beyond the, the realm of possibility to me. 
So imagine, though, you're a believer in the tribulation. You don't have the mark here on your right hand or your forehead, and you're also not wearing it on your clothes. It's not on your car as a decal, as a bumper sticker. It's not on your shoes. You didn't buy the Mark of the Beast shoes. So you're going to stand out like a sore thumb. Sore thumb. You're, you're, you're just going to be... Everybody's going to look at you like, where's your, where's your gear? Where's your stuff, man? And I, and I really think that's going to be part of it. It may not be, but I honestly can see it becoming so big much bigger than just the mark on the hand or the forehead. But those things, accepting that mark, will seal the deal for the individual and where, as far as God is concerned. So this physical mark will identify those who worship Antichrist. And it's going to, as I said, infiltrate society. I think it's going to be on everything. I really think that that's a real possibility. So believers are going to stand out, as I said, as sore thumbs. They will gladly... Those who receive this mark will gladly have this physical mark imprinted on them permanently so they can show it off. And I've mentioned this before, but this is not a new concept. Uh, during the Roman Empire, and other empires, but especially during the Roman Empire because it was so big and it lasted so long, it was not uncommon for Roman soldiers to take the mark or the reference or the name of their commanding officer. If they were drawn to that commanding officer and felt such an, a kinship and loyalty and would be willing to die for that commanding officer, it was, it was nothing for them. It was something they absolutely wanted to do to take the name of their commanding officer and tattoo it on themselves someplace, obviously. That meant that they were aligning themselves with that commander. And they would follow him wherever he led. That was the way the Roman soldiers did it. Of course, not all Roman soldiers did it that way, but those that did, did. It was not a big deal. They, they felt honored to be able to do that. Hmm. So, uh, those people in the coming days of the tribulation, it's going to be a little bit different because people will be forced to take the mark, for one thing. And then, of course, those people... Um, who want it, who take it, will say, oh, yes, of course, why didn't I think of that? Of course, where do I get it? Yeah. Where do I line up? I mean, it's kind of reminiscent to me of the way people lined up for the COVID vax. People couldn't wait to get it. And they're still getting it. Well, it's up to them, but the thinking is what I'm saying. Yeah. The mentality yeah. is there for people to follow what everybody else is doing regardless of what the excuse is. So again, this echoes the plagues, all of these things, the first ball, this echoes the plagues brought upon by Egypt in the book of Exodus, showing just how powerful, by the way, God is, Exodus 9, 8 to 12. You know, it's fascinating when you look at that, we don't have time to get into it, but when you look back at the Exodus and the events leading up to it, and the wrath that God poured out on the Egyptians, and sometimes it was just, pretty much, on the Egyptians. Just on the Egyptians. And God's wrath became extremely obvious, yet Pharaoh consistently resisted it. And that forced God, or allowed God, however you want to look at it, to go to the next level, until God 
destroyed the firstborn of every household, except for those that had the Passover mark uh, on the lintel and doorpost. And yet, it was finally at that point that Pharaoh said, fine, fine, go, go, go. And even then, after all those people left, 600,000 men plus, and then Moses, not to mention the women and the children, and their herds, once they left, then even then Pharaoh had second thoughts. And we know the story. He went after them, and they passed through on dry ground to the Red Sea. And then as soon as the Egyptian armies with uh, Pharaoh in the lead got into the ocean, then God brought that back. But it's amazing how this tribulation and the, the wrath that God pours out in these final judgments, especially in some way mirror the way he dealt with the Egyptians, representing the unbelieving world versus the believers, quote-unquote, who were going into the promised land. That's us, folks. That is us. We are the believers who will eventually get into God's promised land once we pass over this life. But in the meantime, God has plans for this world in judgment, and it is coming, and we can see a lot of that ramping up in society right now. And why the world is going to be at that point where God sends his judgment. It's really getting becoming very clear, or it should be, to people who read his word and understand how God's moving. Verse 3, And after that I looked, and behold, the second poured out his bowl into the sea. It turned to blood like a dead man's, and all life in the sea died. Now, this is interesting. This is not hyperbole. It's not uh, metaphor. It is God saying what he is going to do with this second bowl. The second bowl is essentially, essentially going to cause massive death. Everything in the ocean, in the sea, will die. How could that happen? Because, well, the water turns to blood. And blood in the ocean cannot support life. No. It just simply can't. Like water can, because there's oxygen in water. Unless someone's breathing, there's no oxygen in their blood. So a dead man has no oxygen right. in his blood. That's the way the entire sea is going to be. All sea life died. All of it. It's not hard to imagine, but it's massive in scale. And I am of the opinion that we're talking about real blood here. Mm -hmm. Just as Moses turned the Nile into blood. Mm -hmm. He turned it into blood. It didn't say he turned it into something that looked like blood. Yeah. He turned it into blood. Yeah. Which also means, by the way, the things in the Nile died, like the fish. Yeah. All right, the third bowl. The third poured out his bowl into the rivers and the springs of water, and they became blood. All right, so now you've got a huge problem. Aside from the fact that the sea life has died, all of it, because the judgment, the bowl was poured out on the oceans, all of that happened, but now you've got fresh water. Fresh waters and rivers became blood. They became blood, not like blood. They didn't have this type of red moss that developed and, yeah. you know, crowded life out. This became blood. 
So what else, what other problem do you have here? Well, if you don't have fresh water, you don't have drinking water. Not to mention the fact that anything that lives in fresh water is also going to die. So there are some huge problems here. This is globally massive. Globally massive. You know, we constantly hear about climate change and uh, I guess Greta Thunberg five years ago said by this time in five years, which was this month, 2023, uh, life will become extinct on the planet. I believe it was something like that. Well, she quietly deleted her tweet because obviously that didn't happen. But here, when God pours out the second and the third bowl, all life in all water systems will die. And it will threaten humanity because of the lack of drinking water. Now, what's interesting here is that um, it's most likely a temporary situation because other things happen that make this water drinkable and available again. But God is sending a message. You think that might be rain? Think, would it just rain for fresh water? That could be too. That could be too, yes. But, you know, if you have... If you have no available water on the earth, people will die mm -hmm. in a matter of just a few days. So the tribulation is not over yet. We've still got a while to go. So something has to happen to make water available to people, and that does happen. So the same thing happened to Egypt again when Moses struck the Nile, mm -hmm. rem reminding us that God is in charge God is in charge. You know, sometimes I think because we, we see so many leaders and politicians and bureaucrats making all these decisions and we think, this is ridiculous. Isn't there somebody who thinks that makes decisions? Isn't there someone who has critical thinking skills that understands? Or is there some big ulterior motive underneath and behind all of this that's pushing this world to this system that will ultimately be controlled by the Antichrist. And I think that that's probably it, which means that all the people who are pushing for this thing are either A, really stupid, um, or B, they know what they're doing, and they're getting well paid or rewarded for it, which is probably more likely. But we've got this in our scriptures, which tells us that God is in control of all things, and He can bring destruction at will. And he has in the past, he will in the future. Mm -hmm. And it's all for his purposes because ultimately he will be glorified. We are his creation. Mm -hmm. Men and women are the people he created. So for us to think that we are going to hand it back to God or deal with it and come out the victor, there's something seriously wrong with that. And it's really the same type of hubris that Satan has. We just lack the understanding that Satan has. Yeah. Even though he understands what his end is going to be, he still moves ahead anyway. So verses 5 and 6, I heard the angel of the water say, You are righteous, who is and who was the Holy One. For you have decided these things, because they poured out the blood of the saints and the prophets, you also gave them blood to drink. They deserve it. Mm -hmm. Well, what is that telling us? It's telling us that there should be no doubt. Mm -hmm. An angel declares that God is righteous for sending and giving to the world 
a judgment that suits their mm -hmm. actions against believers. That's what this judgment is about. It is payback. And God is the one who avenges. So we're not supposed to do this as Christians. God avenges and He is doing so right here. He is making these people who have killed believers for centuries. It is finally at a tipping point where God says enough is enough. And just to consider all the millions of souls during the tribulation period who will be martyred because they are believers in Christ. And God mm -hmm. says, that's enough. I am now going to send a judgment to the world that will make them drink the blood of believers they have spilt. Mm -hmm. And they're going to drink it, whether they like it or not. I can imagine some of them, before the waters become fresh again, that they will be willing to do whatever they can to drink some of this in the hopes of getting even some semblance of water out of it. Mm -hmm. Verse 7, Then I heard someone from the altar say, Yes, Lord God, the Almighty, true and righteous are your judgments. That's the big difference between us and God. God judges with truth and with righteousness. He's the only one who can which is why he said, Vengeance is mine, I will repay. That's what we need to do, is kind of leave it in his hands. Confirmation again that God's judgments are righteous, and they are true. There is no shortcoming with his judgments. There is no reason to question his judgments. God judges as he sees fit, according to to his own counsel, for the purpose of his glory. So what God dishes out, I think we can ask ourselves, do people really deserve this? Mm -hmm. God thinks they do. God thinks they do. So because of that, he pours it out. They get what they deserve, and the punishment fits the crime here. And again, God did, did this before in judgment, where he paid back. Exodus 1.22, 14.28, Esther 7.10 and 9.10. Remember him? Who was that guy? Haman. Haman. He wanted to, he wanted to send somebody to the gallows. <laughs> and he was a relative of Esther. What was his name again? Mordecai. Mordecai. Boy, Haman hated. And so he came up with this plan to... My dogs are on the trail. He came up with this plan to get rid of Mordecai. Hang him on the gallows. Well, that didn't work out so well. And God turned the tables on him. So who was hung on the gallows? Haman. Haman was. So God is not unwilling to pay back in kind when he sees fit. And the altar here in this verse, then I heard someone from the altar say it. The altar is probably the personification of the martyrs that were killed during the tribulation period. Alright, 16, 8, 9. The fourth poured out his bowl on the sun. He was given the power to burn people with fire. 
and people were burned by the intense heat. So they did what? They praised God? They repented? No. They blasphemed the name of the God, of God. Who had the power over these plagues? And they did not repent. And did not give Him glory. They didn't change their opinions. They didn't change their minds. God sent to them fire enough to burn them. Remember, this is poured out on the sun, so for some reason the sun heats up and people are literally scorched. It's really kind of an idea of what it's going to feel like for these people when they die and are sent to hell because of the decisions they made during this lifetime. So in spite of the terrible heat from the sun, people don't repent. They don't give the glory due to God. They basically continue and dig their heels in further. What I think is interesting here is, again, as I said at the beginning, we don't really know how those judgments are going to come from the throne to the earth. Could they be some of the climactic changes, climate changes that occur that are maybe man-made? Yeah. You know, it's, it's quite possible that God will use those very things like Bill Gates wants to dim the sun. Well, I can see a problem with that, and I'm not even a scientist. <laughs> Other things in the climate change industry, that's what it is, are creating issues for people, for the world. Will that be used, will it backfire on civilization um, during the tribulation? It's very possible. And by the way, there is a definite article that exists in the Greek language before people. So the fourth poured out his bowl on the sun. He was given the power to burn the people. The people. Which people? The ones who have not the ones who have received the mark, not those who have not received the mark. Mm -hmm. So again, this is very reminiscent of Egypt. Mm -hmm. You know, when God sent certain judgments, it only affected those in Egypt, mm -hmm. only the unbelievers. Revelation uh, 16, 10, 11, the fifth poured out his bowl on the throne of the beast and his kingdom was plunged into darkness. This mm -hmm. is fascinating. This is God basically dealing directly with the Antichrist, who is fully supernaturally empowered by Satan himself. And this is God's message to the Antichrist. Your kingdom is going to end in absolute darkness, and end it will. That's what God is saying. One of the things God is saying to the Antichrist. But check this out. This darkness is so dark that people nod their tongues because of their pain. I'm not sure why the pain comes in, but we'll get to that in a second. Maybe I am. I don't know. We'll see. And they blaspheme the God of heaven because of their pains and their sores, yet they did not repent of their actions. Um, you know, my wife and I, when we moved to the country a number of years ago, people told us, when you go to the country, it's dark, dark. Mm -hmm. It's not just dark. It's dark, dark. <laughs> you can live in a town... And when you turn off all your lights in the house and other people turn off the lights in their house, you've still got street lights galore. You've still got a lot of light around you. So you're never really completely in the dark, of course, unless the electricity goes out and there's a power outage. Then you're in the dark. Well, in the country, you can drive down a ton of country roads that don't have 
any lights. Mm -hmm. And one day we were coming home and I decided for fun, I was going very slowly on a dirt road, no one else was around, and I turned off my headlights. And it was dark, yeah. really Country. Country dark. dark. Yeah, and so I only did that for about a second or two and turned that back on, but it was amazing exactly how dark it was. So that's what God's going to do. His entire kingdom, which means the world, is plunged into darkness. It is so thick, you can't see anything even by putting your hand in front of your face. You could feel it maybe. You know, your breath may bounce off of it if you let out some air, but you can't see it. And it is also reminiscent of Egypt's plagues sent on them through Moses. And by the way, these pains, they're... How is the dark causing pain? Well, it's very possible that this reference, people nod their tongues because of their pain, actually refers back to the sores from the first bowl. So if that's possible, what it means is those sores were not necessarily temporary. Yeah. They were given to these people. They lasted for quite some time, at least up until the fifth bowl. Still, people do not repent. And again, we're looking ahead into the future. And it is so bad with God sending these judgments that people still refuse to recognize that He is God, that they need to bow the knee willingly. They will all ultimately bow the knee, being forced to. They will do it, maybe against their will, but they will do it. Satan himself will do it. So this is the kind of stuff that happens at the last portion of the tribulation. It's not pretty. It is God sending the world a definite message that He is God. He is in control. He will be glorified. So next time, we're going to look at Revelation 16, 12 through 21, which is basically the final two bowls. The sixth bowl, that's when the Euphrates dries up. And the seventh bowl, the earth utterly shaken. So we'll get into those um, and why the Euphrates dries up. And I'll just give you a little bit of a caveat right now. Scientists are telling us right now that the Euphrates is actually in the process of drying up. But it will come to a point where it will be completely dried up. And God will have a purpose for that as well. So, thanks for joining me on this uh, trip into Revelation 16. Next time we'll finish up 16 and hopefully get into 17. Mm. And uh, until we meet again, I pray that God will open your eyes to show you how blessed you are in Him.